I'm Dr. Jill Wiener. I'm a white woman, a doctor, a meditation teacher, a tapping practitioner, a writer, and I'm an aspiring anti-racist, an identity which I must constantly strive towards, work on, and reevaluate. This podcast amplifies the powerful voices of women and men in all aspects of the anti-racist space, from healthcare to spirituality to criminal justice, to provide a nuanced, honest, and educational examination of systemic racism. I am so grateful and so excited to have Jay Hughes here with me. Jay is an influential community leader whose non-traditional route to success includes 18 years of incarceration in both state and federal prison. In his current role as director of training at the Georgia Council on Substance Abuse, he's responsible for qualifying and certifying addiction recovery specialists. He brings a wealth of experience to his highly sought after cultures training which is a part of the Georgia Council's flagship program, CARES. And when he's not advocating for the addiction community, he enjoys spending quality time with his son and daughter. Jay, thank you so much for joining. I'm so, so thrilled to have you on the podcast. Thank you for having me, Jay. It's a pleasure. Um, all right, well, let's get started. So um, I'd love to hear a little bit about the, the circumstances and context in your life that led to your arrest and kind of what what factors got you to that point? Uh, thanks, that's a, that's a great kickoff question, uh, Jill. I think, uh, first let me offer a disclaimer, some of the thoughts and the opinions that are expressed by me uh, are not necessarily those of the Georgia Council on the Substance Abuse or its partner. So I ain't no telling what I may say, <laughs> so I just want to you know, what I may express is not, uh, is not reflected in an adverse manner to the Georgia Council on Substance Abuse or any of our stakeholders or partners. So the question, uh, I guess, to kind of set the stage, I was born in Chattanooga, Tennessee in 19, uh, yeah, in the 1970s. <laughs> uh, shortly after that, I ended up moving to uh, California, Van Nuys, San Fernando Valley, California, and then from San Fernando Valley back to Tennessee, a little bit of Cincinnati. So I kind of traveled around just based on the circumstances of being raised by a single mom. Also, I had to support my, my aunts and uh, uncles and a few other people that kind of helped stand in the gap from my mom as, as being a struggling single parent mom. So one of the things that really kind of set the stage for my life when I think about it is just my lack of awareness around me. Like uh, Growing up in my neighborhood, we didn't see a lot of uh, aspiring successful people in the, in the realms of legal like we didn't, I didn't have a relationship with an attorney or a lawyer or a doctor like yourself or even builders or successful salesmen. So I naturally gravitated toward the things and the images that I've seen in my neighborhood that were often sensationalized uh, on part, I guess, of half the story. Like I've seen the success of the, the success of the, the drug dealers and the hustlers and the robbers, uh, but not really understanding or fully conceptualizing everything that came with that, that type of lifestyle. So just to kind of put things in context. So I just wanted to kind of be that. I wanted to have nice stuff. I always, always kind of attracted to the, the allure of the lifestyle of just having nice stuff. And I couldn't really see how to get it other than uh, partaking in the things that I saw in my neighborhood that I qualified as being somewhat successful. So I ended up hustling early in life. I started selling weed when I was young in school. Then I started from there, crack. And from crack, uh, it kind of escalated to there. And by the time I was 21 years old, I was sentenced to 25 years in state prison for trafficking cocaine. I served a third of my time, was right at eight years. I promised myself when I was in state prison, I said, never coming back. Yeah. 
And if I do, I'm going to the feds. Three years later, I went to the feds. I went, <laughs> I got uh, caught up in a drug conspiracy charge and I ended up getting sentenced to 13 years in federal prison. And I did 10 years in prison based on that. So I think that when I think about it, it's just that progression. I was, I was aspirational <laughs> in a sense, but my aspiration uh, led me to a lengthy incarceration that totals 18 years. How do you feel, how do you feel that like systemic, the, the policies and the, the, the way that racism is so systemic in this, in our society affected your path? Because um, it, it's not just as simple as like, you were a boy and you saw these things and wanted them. Like there was, there were systemic obstacles that led you in, a, in that direction, I would say. And, and please forgive me if I'm, if I'm misspeaking or please correct me if I'm misspeaking. Looking back, do you see, because it sounds like while it was happening, you weren't quite aware, but looking back, how do you see that? I, that's, I look at it like this. How, is, how does Jay Hughes, a African-American male from a small town in Tennessee, have access to 25 kilograms of cocaine? <laughs> you know, so I got access to kilograms of cocaine, but I don't have access to those other things that I talked about within my community. So. And I'm not the biggest conspiracy theorist, but if you was just to look at this, just a little bit of, of, of objectivity, you'll say, yeah, I think it's something uh, systemic or systematic that's in place. Yeah. And one of the things that I really never knew, and a lot of, not to, I think I can say this for a lot of guys that's in the system, like you really don't understand the policies and the laws surrounded around the crimes that you're doing. So for an example, most guys don't know if, you have a, a history of, of violence or if you have a felony drug conviction and then you're arrested in federal court, they use that prior conviction to enhance the current sentence. So you may be facing a mandatory minimum of 10 years for this charge that you're indicted on, but based on your history, that 10 goes all the way to 20. And no matter what context of your life, meaning the circumstances and the conditions that led to your arrest, the judge don't consider those things based on that mandatory minimum that's statutory imposed by Congress. So most guys don't even have a relationship with congressmen and lawmakers, so they don't know. So they're just out here hustling and they're putting their life on the line, literally, uh, that can adversely affect their lives forever. Because I got guys that that's still locked up for those Dracula sentences from a long time ago when you just really ignorant of the system and you're committing these crimes just to, you know, whether it's just to make ends meet, to take care of your family or to live a life of opulence. Because, you know, sometimes, you know, it's, it's extremely, it get extreme when it comes to how lavish the lifestyles that we can live. But I think when, for, as far as your question about systematic, like we don't understand the policies and the laws that are in place, because in a real sense, we wouldn't a part of that decision-making process. So anytime right. you have one group of people making decisions that affect another group of people, and you're not even in relationship with those people, then you have these people ostracized and being adversely affected by those laws, and you don't even know. Same thing happened with uh, women's suffrage. You have a bunch of guys talking about voting, and no women was at the table. I promise you when they said women can't vote, I'm sure it wasn't a woman, or maybe been some based on his story. Maybe like, maybe you don't need to, but you got a whole nother other group of women saying, no, nah, I think I want a part of this process because it affects the quality of my life and my children. Thank you for that, for that explanation. Um, so what are, what are some of the lessons you learned by being incarcerated? And this may be, this may range from like very practical to like big picture stuff, but whatever, whatever resonates with you here. I think, uh, I think it's a saying, and, and I could be misquoted, that talks about uh, how you get the 
sort of you get the learning and then you get the teaching or you get the teaching and you get the lesson later. So at the time when I was incarcerated, my biggest lesson was just trying to make it through. So it's, it's more so a survival technique. So you kind of fill your time up whatever you can, whether it's taking classes, whether it's playing space all day, whether it's wearing the hell out of your family members to do stuff for you because your hands are tired. Uh, and then you have just that whole, because you really can't see, well, I couldn't see, I couldn't see freedom. Like that's such an abstract thought, like being released. Like, so it's this whole notion of freedom is really this abstract thought in the mind where you can't really see release. Like if you got 10 years, like imagine, if you're in in a cell and you say, okay, well, I'm gonna get out 10 years from now. Like, how did you wrap your mind <laughs> around that and still be sane? So it's like, I just, I'm like, I'm living for the weekend. If I can just get a visit, if I can just get an email, if I can just get a card, if I can just get somebody to answer the phone, then I make it through the day. And oftentimes most people don't have that. So to think about that sort of lessons that most people learn is just how to just survive and thrive in an environment that is really meant to destroy you. So, but when I think about just, the life lessons is um, is more for me is understanding how the system works, understanding how to navigate that system, and most important thing is some kind of way staying connected to someone. Because, like we say, in the um, that the opposite of addiction is connection. So, hmm. for me, the opposite of of just being oppressed and depressed and suppressed by the system is staying connected. And the way in which you do that is either staying connected with those that's inside of you, that's inside prison rather, that's trying to get released or staying in contact with friends or families or even people that's, because if you have no connection, you have no power. So I think for me, when I think about one of the biggest things, and I wish I would have done better in some aspects, is make sure that I develop and learn some really good relationship skills on how to navigate relationships and dealing with challenging people. Because you know, I'm not trying to trivialize it and say, well, the system be, fi be fixed by relationships and connection. But what I am trying to say that if, if an individual has relationships and connection to people like yourself and other individuals that are anti-racist and people that work in charge of systems and individuals that have the responsibility to put in programs and resources in place for individuals when they come home, then for me to work toward that and help develop that internally and externally, for me, it was one of those biggest lessons. Uh, and just as tantamount is just being informed and, and just making sure you understand and you teach people, listen, if you do this, they're going to do this. You, <laughs> there's no way around it. If you get caught with this, they're going to do this. Or if you, so it's, and it's, it's simple, but it's not easy. But I think just understanding that and being really able to conceptualize the power of the system. Because when I got my paperwork, Jill, it said the United States of America versus Jay Hughes. So if you look at it just that, you step back and you see a document that says, you have the whole full force of the government, the United States government, you know, everything the government did historically against you. <laughs> and then they're going to say, well, we're going to get you an attorney, too, to represent you. Where'd he come from? Well, he came from the government, too. <laughs> so it's like, ah, man, I think I'm in trouble. Yeah. Next <laughs> you find yourself in this federal bureau of prisons, and you're like, wow. Yeah. And and, and you don't even know how it happened. It's like it's the slippery slope or this winding road that you find yourself at the end of and you look up and you say, how do I, you, two, two questions, how do I survive this and am I going to make it out of it? And in the time frame between incarceration and the release, what's going to happen to my life? What's going to happen to my family? What's going to happen to the world where I'm in here? Because I have no power over how that world is influenced. I do not feel powerless in a sense. Yeah. Um, how do you keep, like, or did you have access to newspapers or, or like, 
TV news or anything? How did you stay on top of what was happening in the world while you were incarcerated? Now I had, um, I used to always get emails uh, in federal prison. They have an email system now, so people can copy and paste you emails and guys get the USA Today in and we get newspapers in and books. And I was a real avid reader. I didn't like school coming up. So I wasn't really, I didn't graduate anything. Summa cum laude, I kind of graduated. Thank you, Lordy. Uh, my mom just graduated. So, but I did uh, become an avid reader. I, I began to read and try to learn how to express myself. So we have access to, you know, cable news is there obviously, and we watch every news and every ESPN and there's somebody always in front of the TV. <laughs> it's not the, not the safest place in prison, the TV room for your information, but uh, okay. we, uh, we had access to those type of the information and people always reading and trying to stay abreast of the case law. Of course, like the law library is, is extremely limited in terms of having access to the latest law reviews and things like that. But most guys in prison, if you want to get access to current events, you can pretty much stay abreast of it. Okay. All right. Thank you for that. Um, what are some things you wish people knew about you? Uh, you and I were talking before. I think it's really easy to point fingers for, for, for people who have not been incarcerated or don't know other human beings who have been incarcerated to like point fingers and, and not see the whole person. Um, what, what are some things you wish people knew about you? I think the biggest thing for me is that no matter where I was, I was crazy on drugs or dealing with mental health issues or struggling to find a job or being incarcerated, like at that point, I never stopped being a person. And I think for me, that's the one of the broadest takeaways that I try to get people to think because what society typically does is we stigmatize people so bad where your diagnosis becomes your diagnosis, whether it's your mental health diagnosis or uh, whatever kind of behavior health diagnosis you have, or your, even your number when you go to prison, trumps who you are as a person. Mm. So you become something, and that's how you can kind of demonize people when you reduce them to not being a person. So for me, if people just always looked at me as like, that is a person, and see themselves in me as a reflection of what could have happened to you had you maybe had a different skin color, maybe raised in another social economic environment or another demographic. But as far as personally me, I think, people, what people know about me is that what I wish people knew about me is that I don't have any regrets about how my life turned out. I do have some things that I miss and I feel real bad for not being there for, for my marriage, uh, not being there for my, my grandmother when she passed away and being there for my mom. And for me, like the biggest thing when I just, when people really just knew about me is that I always expire to be something other than what I was. Like I always aspired to make sure, even when I was hustling, like I wanted to be something other than this. Like I never hustled with the end being in mind that I want to just be Nino Brown. <laughs> I didn't want to be, you know, like I don't want to be Lucas. I don't want to be, I just want to be able to get myself in a position that's sustainable and buy some properties or do something that can help my community and be able to set a stage that's saying, hey man, if I can be an example for somebody else and say, hey, you know, everything that you went through was designed for you to be able to become this and take those life lessons that you, from the question you asked me earlier and be able to help somebody else. Uh, because my thing is, if I can be the tail lights for somebody else to come behind and say, hey man, old school did it this way. That's what they call me now. It was so funny. Like, what's up, old school? <laughs> old school? <laughs> and they be like, <laughs> but I get it. No, I guess I kind of wear it as a badge of honor, but to be able to say, hey man, there are so many different avenues in life and looking at Jay and say, look what Jay did. So just to expire somebody, and I just wish somebody knew that 
uh, those individuals, specifically me, when we're going through those tough times that you're not defined by those circumstances. And even though it looks natural when you're in it, then it's really not natural. And to be able to look at Jay and say, hey, man, he's a person that endured. He went through it. He crazy as hell, but he's a person that's going to always uh, stand the gap for you and speak truth to power and take use platforms like this to be able to help influence the system or if nothing else, give people a heightened sense of awareness about exactly what they're dealing with when they're navigating this criminal justice system. Wow. Thank you for that. That's so powerful. Um, we know, yeah, I, there's just some things people say, I'm like, I have nothing, nothing intelligent to reply to that because you just said everything. Um, I'd like, if you're, if you're open to sharing a little bit about your, um, about uh, the way you see substance abuse and addiction and incarceration and access to treatment, how that all interplays. And if you, if you want to share a little bit on, on your own experience with that, or if you want to just talk bigger picture, however you feel like it best would answer the question or resonate. Yeah, I'm comfortable either way. I look at it and I look at it as an internal, because uh, I'm a person in long-term recovery. And so I look at it as, when I think about addiction, I look at it from, from two levels. One, I look at it how systemically, how these drugs, whether it's by Big Pharma or whether it's by uh, way of Columbia, <laughs> I look at how these two entities kind of coexist, but one is demonized and stigmatized so bad. And then one is like, use these, they're safe and they're effective. And then when you get addicted to these, my bad. <laughs> we, we made a mistake. They're not as safe as we thought they was, and they're extremely addictive, but we got, we got something for you. We got these other drugs that you can take that uh, will get you off these drugs, and you might be on these drugs for the rest of your life, but we're going to give you these drugs, and we're going to put so many barriers in place for you to have access to these drugs, even though we gave you these drugs that got you addicted on these drugs. So I know that's, that's a lot, but and, and, and I'm not trivializing it to saying it was that simple, but I think that when you look at it in this framework, you say, okay, it's, it's more palatable. Yeah. And, you know, and obviously the state and government sued Big Pharma for the opioid crisis and I get it. But then you have this other one that is when you look at the advertisements and when you look at the movies and all this other stuff, it's like if you're one of these. You are scum. You are a scumbag. You need to be put away. You whatever. Same effects. Both people died. One got a fine one got time. So I just look at this and say, oh, okay, maybe it's something sinister at play. I don't know. Uh, and then I look at as far as addiction and recovery from a personal and, and an organizational point for, standpoint, excuse me, from the Georgia Council on Substance Abuse, and I see addiction as a chronic, treatable, preventable disease. It's like any other, like hypertension, like, like, uh, like diabetes. And, but I look at it as a, as a different because the symptoms are so much different. So instead of us uh, about to run you over when we see the red light on at Krispy Kremes <laughs> because, you know, we, we're diabetic and we just want that sugar, but you don't see them being stigmatized like that, those individuals that suffer from that. And, but when you see somebody in addiction that is stealing your stuff <laughs> because they're having those same cravings or they're trying to get their fix, then it's like those people have this moral failing, those people, and the whole terminology that I wish we can get rid of is those people. Mm. Like, People say, well, those people, I just, I not heard people say those people and they were talking about me. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I'm one of those people that you're talking about. <laughs> like, excuse me, I'm, I'm in the room, I'm in the room. Oh, yeah. So I think that, but so if I can get people to understand that addiction is not a moral failing, it's not like I'm not whacking up in my way, almost about to spaz out and go use again, but I have this chronic treatable disease that oftentimes 
because so many people have limited access to professional treatment and treatment don't work for everybody. And I think people don't understand that. And one of the tricky things about treatment is if I'm in desperate need of help to you and I come to your center and you have these policies in place that saying, hey, fill out all this paperwork and then we'll let you in or whatever. And because I'm high or because I'm detoxing, whatever you put in front of me to say I can get in, I'm gonna sign. So oftentimes it may say, can't fill a urinalysis. And I'm gonna just sign it because, but 20 days later or whatever, I fill a urinalysis, they kick me out. So hold on, let me get this straight. So you confirm my diagnosis by me failing this urinalysis. And then once you confirm my diagnosis, you kick me out. That really don't make sense. Right. Policies are in place by people that are uninformed that make these policies that says, yes, that's just the rules if you want to stay here. All right, well, I'm gone because I have a disease which affects the way my priorities are. You think that I really want to wake up this morning, get high or drunk and not take care of my kids? No, no, most people, most rational thinking people that are on, on drugs don't, doesn't have that premise to start their day off like that. But because how addiction works and how it affects the brains, it shifts your behavior and your priorities to just, just this is your behavior as a consequence of your disease. Mm -hmm. so, uh, you know, and if you look at the statistics as it relates to individuals that use drugs or have substance use disorder versus the individuals that incarcerated, you see as a theme really going on. If you like how like uh, peanut butter and jelly, drug using and drug dealing, they kind of go hand in hand. So you really can't have one without the other. Even individuals that are high up in the drug hierarchy is some kind of substance abuse, substance use disorder within that person's profile in some type of way. So I think when I look at how those intertwine, and then once you get caught up into the system and you lose your rights to protect yourself and you go through life moving forward without access to care, you can't get good long. I couldn't even get Jill was interesting. I couldn't even get life insurance when I came home as long as I was on parole or probation. I was like, no, nah, you, you don't pay, but we can't insure you. So hold on. I can't even die. <laughs> so I can't even die and leave my family so if something happened to me. So it's like your money ain't even good. So it's like, so when I look at those two things, like with a, you can't have a firearm, you can't vote, you can't do all those things. So it's like this equal protection under the law no longer applies to you, but it all started from a substance use disorder, you have to ask yourself, like, how did I even get on drugs? Why would a child who was seemingly brought up in a, a loving family or wasn't brought up in a loving family continues continues on those contexts or circumstances of conditions, like, how does this person end up on drugs? And you have to ask yourself, is one or one out of three black men or one out of five black men are destined to go to jail? That's enough to make somebody want to get high. <laughs> it's like, you know, I might want to get high. I was going to get my dopamine levels from somewhere because I'm not going to be able to get it from this society based on how it was set up. And it's not a cop out. It's not an excuse. It's just a real rational thought if you just look at it objectively. But I think most people, when we have this discussion, Jill, is they have this visceral reaction to it where it's like, no, I ain't, uh -uh. you had a choice. You didn't have to do that. Yeah, I might have had a choice, but if there were no values in those choices, then where did I really have a choice? Yeah. Right? Because your choices, your choices are contained upon your values. So if I don't value anything in my choices, then I'm gonna go to whatever is comfortable or whatever I know or whatever I see within the within my neighborhood and my environment. Wow. Um, and that's that's sort of getting back to that, I guess, to the circumstances that that lead that led to your arrest. I think is that that mindset and what you've been exposed to and what you've seen because of the because of systemic racism and how, how that does play in. And I think people who go through life 
looking like me um, who don't get necessarily exposed to that except in uh, movies or something like that um, or driving through an area of town that, that doesn't look like their own area. It's real easy to say those, those people, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, and not look back at ourselves and see like, wh- how am I contributing and how, how is it? We talked about that in the, um, for anyone listening, we, we met at the equitable dinners um, event, this incredible uh, monthly dinner event. And we were talking about who benefits from um, the, the um, prison industrial complex, like who, who, who benefits from that. And we were talking about how like even people who don't think they benefit from it um, are benefiting. Um, how, um, how did you, so you have 14 years sober for, I wanted to congratulate you for that and, and share that with anyone listening. It's pretty amazing. How did you get sober? What worked for you? Oh, that's a, it's funny people ask me that because it's a difference between people that are sober, are quote clean versus individuals that are in recovery. Okay. Yeah. So I just wanted to make sure I, as a point of clarification. So I got sober when I got locked up. <laughs> I didn't have, you know, obviously jail, I have access to everything, but when they kicked my door down and arrested me, that was the day that, okay, I ain't, it's over as far as drugs and alcohol usage. So that was the day I got sober. But this thing that we talk about as it relates to recovery, it's much more than just the absence of drugs and alcohol. It's about having like this holistic point of life where you're saying, hey, you know, this is the direction that I want to have. This is the things that I call my values. These are my principles. And this is sort of like my North Star, whether it's uh, the values that we expound at the council, or Georgia Council, like integrity and recovery and, um, and hope and wellness and diversity and inclusion, those type things is when you kind of on a trajectory to a sustainable recovery, because it's much more than that. Because you got people that say they used to use crack or heroin that now just say, man, I don't use heroin or I don't use cocaine anymore, but I do smoke me a little weed because of my anxiety. Now, can who's me to say, well, you ain't in recovery no more? because you're not at what we call the clinical cutoff, like you're still going to work, you're still having your business, but you have a beer or you have a glass of wine at night, or you have, you know, maybe you do CBD or whatever it may be to maintain that anxiety or whatever mental health issues or maybe physical health issues you have. So we have to be careful about how we define those people because I know people that's in the AANA community be like, no, if you do anything other than abstinence, you're not. But that's, we got to be tricky because that's, that's about to be careful about that because we have individuals that use medication assistant treatment, such as Suboxone and Bivitrol from your opioid use disorder. Those people should be qualified as being in recovery also. But some groups would be like, no, nah, if you use that, you're not. So, and that stigmatizes people within the own recovery community. So we have to be how we try to have this monopoly on who's in recovery or who's clean and who's not because recovery is not this monolithic structure that says that you don't do this, this, and this. Because even when we think about the NA, uh, NA, uh, AA stuff, you know, I often question like who wrote it? It wasn't a bunch of people that sit around and look like me that had to say so in, in that book. And so many people have gotten well through that, through that vehicle of recovery, through that pathway as we call it, but that's not, it's not a one size fits all. So for me, like just being able to have a succinct way of thinking in a clear manner was enough for me to realize like, hey, I can't be high on my mind no more and, and claim to navigate the system because, you know, in the, in African-American vernacular, we say slippers count. And slippery is if you caught slipping because you're not paying attention because you was high or you was on drugs, then that slip, when they catch you, it count. And that 
funny could necessarily mean you end up in prison for the rest of your life. So for me, like like-minded people that focus on recovery, it's much more than just not using them. You can get, stopping using can be seemingly simple for some, but it's much more to say, okay, how does my life look now in the absence of drugs and alcohol, but I'm not somewhere every time I see a drink or I can't go to a sports bar and I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm triggered, as they would say. And some people suffer from that, and that's unfortunate, and I get it. And some people have to be like, you know, I can't even walk by that place anymore. Or I'm in a red light, and I see where I used to cop my drugs from. It just paralyzes me with fear because I know it's so easy to take that left turn versus that right turn. So like, when we talk about this thing called recovery and substance use disorder and, and even using terms like relapse that is not rooted in medicine, relapse is it's a moral issue. Nowhere in medicine, because you don't have people don't relapse from diabetes. Like you can have a recurrence to use, or we like to say you have a setback. But when we talk about this thing called addiction and recovery, I think we have to really look at it in a broader sense because we're dealing with people, and this recovery community is comprised of people, and people are different and they're not dynamic. Because you know, once you think you know everything about a person, they're gonna change on you. <laughs> So it's not like this set in stone proposition where you can feel like, okay, this is what recovery means. And obviously there's some guardrails along that way. It's like, you can't say you're in recovery, obviously being, you know, how your mind all the time. But I also think that we have to be mindful of not to ostracize other individuals that are on this pathway called recovery because they haven't gotten to where you are in your recovery. That's so, I mean, like white supremacy culture has even gotten into <laughs> recovery. Right. <laughs> How it's defined and, and, and needing it to be only one right way. That's one of the symptoms of white supremacy culture. That's so funny. I'm not funny, not funny, haha, but ironic that exactly. to that level. Um, so let's talk a little bit maybe about the work you do, the Georgia Council um, for Substance Abuse and, and how you got into that work and, and, um, and what you love about it. Yeah, uh, it's, we have, uh, how I got started, interestingly enough, I used to be a personal trainer, I still train a little bit on the side, and I had a, a client, and her name is Stephanie Lee, she's passed away, man, I, I miss her dearly, and I'm training her one day, and I'm like, man, I'm really trying to figure out what I'm going to do, I'm, I'm, I'm making this money training, I'm doing this trucking stuff, and I'm just like, she was like, well, Jay, I think, I was like, what about being like an addiction counselor or something like that? She was like, I was like how long is it going to take? It'll take you a couple years. I was like, a couple of years, I need some money. Yeah, I ain't got time. She was like, well, how about you going through this program called CARES? I was like, what's a CARES? A CARES is an acronym for Certified Addiction Recovery Empowerment Specialist. We're also known as recovery coaches. So a recovery coach is, is we don't give clinical diagnosis. It's basically a person that have the lived experience from being on drugs and alcohol and mental health issues that's able to kind of have a mutual relationship with what we call as our peers. So obviously it's always going to be a somewhat of a power dynamic between a person that's in recovery versus a person that's not. But a, a peer, like a recovery coach, is an individual that really understands how to have compassionate conversations, to how to help individuals kind of dance with discord or ambivalence when they're not really sure what they want to do, and to be able to have some, some skills around the science of addiction and how the brain works, and also understand that everything is kind of caught to the cut rather to the continuity of the culture when it comes to dealing with people. So that program, she told me about it and I applied for it. So, I, so out of, usually we have about 100 applications for CARES and we only take 20 people. So out of the 100 applicant pool, I was selected, went through the academy, and then at the end of the academy, I was still, I had started my consulting business uh, doing, um, helping individuals navigate through the prison system. And I got a call from a guy that's from the uh, Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Disabilities, Tony Sanchez. He said, hey, man, they're hiring at the Georgia Council. 
that's like the CARES team leader manager, why don't you talk to the executive director, Neil Campbell, and, and see, you know, if it's a good fit. So Neil and I talk. Fast forward, I end up getting a job as the team lead. About a year later, I end up getting a job as a director of trainings over the same program that was introduced to me by a client. So that's how that kind of started. That's such a beautiful story, such synchronicity, and it's led to so much. Um, do you do you still work with people one on one? Or are you more training trainers now, or training uh, the coaches? Are the uh, I guess the um, recovery coach. So are you training coaches more, or do you still do your individual work? Well, it's two things. I'm, I'm, maybe I was like the first one I was working with Stephanie. I was her personal trainer, <laughs> so so I went now as the as a trainer at the Georgia Council on Substance Abuse. That's different. So that's at the Georgia Council on Substance Abuse. I'm the director over the training department. So which really is the CARES program. So in the CARES program, we train individuals to go out and be, be recovery coaches. So the individual CARES, the recovery coaches. Uh, they work in hospitals, they work in a neonatal unit, they work in the emergency departments, they work in drug courts now. So it's like this whole thing about recovery coaches is usually like therapists or clinicians, they can't disclose that no matter what their background is, so like this line, but we can as recovery coaches, we can go in and sit next to a, a, a peer or somebody that's struggling and say, hey man, I, I don't know exactly how you feel, but let me tell you a little bit about myself. You know, my name is Jamie, I've been 18 years in prison, I've been where you are, and instantly, it's, there's usually a connection. Like it, you yeah. can see it, they, they look up. And so I think that part of the, the behavioral health field, specifically for mental health and recovery, was a component that was missing because it's hard for individuals. Like for me, and, and I'm not disparaging anybody, it's hard for me to get along with somebody that ain't been through nothing. And I, now when I say been through nothing, I mean been through some kind of pain or adverse in your life and came back from it because that usually was binds us like a jill if i know that you and, and and that and i'm not going to rate your pain scale so i think we have to be careful about this oppression olympics well jill if you ain't did 18 years in prison you don't know what you're talking about you don't know what it looked like <laughs> and also something that was just traumatic or devastating for you and and we can have a point of connection on that because i promise you the things that help you get back from that difficult part will be some of the same things that help me get back whether it was prayer whether it was family whether it was <laughs> therapist, a counselor, a preacher, a prophet, I don't know, maybe ain't no telling, exercise or whatever. So with the Georgia Counselor and what we do at the CARES is we finally have these recovery coaches and what we refer to as this continuum of care. So instead of just seeing a doctor that looks at you, if you come in for uh, to treat it for some type of addiction, like, like what they just treat it like a broken arm, like this acute care model. And it's like that, like recovery is a continuum. So you may need a doctor to set it, but you also gonna need some therapy. You may need some rehab. You may need some other things because this thing called addiction is, is, is chronic. Yeah. So the that we do at the council is to date, we've trained over 800 certified addiction recovery empowerment specialists throughout the state and throughout the nation yeah. to be able to go in these clinical settings and have the peer voice, the lived experience voice where somebody can stand up and say, hey, I don't know about y'all, but when I was in that seat, that's not how I want to be treated. And that's the reason why it didn't work for me because people say, well, Jay, treatment and you failed treatment. No, I didn't. Treatment failed me. Mm. And I think that's where people get it twisted because it's like the system is designed to serve people. And if you're not serving people because you're frustrated because of the policies, then you can do two things. You can help be an advocate to change those policies or you can just get the hell out of the way. Yeah. Because I know everybody don't have the wherewithal to fight the system and get in because it's, it's exhausting. So just move out the way. 
unless somebody get in that position that can influence some change, some systemic change, because if, you know, people that I really believe, Jill, that people don't get into these professions, whether it's, I, I hope to believe, to just screw people over. Like, I don't think nobody wake up in the morning, and maybe some prosecutors like that, or maybe some people like that, but I really don't want to believe that people wake up in the morning, Jill, and say, you know what, I'm going to do everything I can today to deny somebody the services that, that they desperately need. <laughs> I hope we ain't at that point. Not. Yeah. <laughs> They, yeah, they. <laughs> from the inside, it doesn't look like that. Maybe from their own from their own lived experience, it doesn't look right. like that. Although other people may, may exactly. Be different. <laughs> um. So, so thank you for for explaining the difference between recovery and sobriety. I have a, a, a close friend of mine who's a client of mine also, and she says, um, I think maybe something similar. She's like, he's a he's a sober drunk. Like he, those are his, her words, but like he does not drink, but he still has the same behaviors and, and have, you know, the, the way he interacts with people is some of the same stuff that he did when he was actively drinking. Um, so I feel like is that, I, I don't know if that's a term that you've heard before. Maybe it's not like. Um, I can see it. I haven't necessarily heard expressed that way but I think it points to the uh, example that I use because if you're just not drinking but you're still miserable then are you really in recovery it's like how is that a sustainable life you wake up every morning it's like let me just get through this and I really wish I had a drink to get me through it but I can't have one because I don't want to fall off the wagon so I'm just gonna suffer my while my white knuckle it through the day and it's like I don't want to live like that but I think that happens when people or continue to be stigmatized and people can't really talk about addiction in a way that is just clear and compelling with under the auspices of it being a chronic, uh, preventable, treatable health condition. And I think if people, more people really understood that and stop stigmatized, like I use this, the stigma thing as an example, imagine if you're fresh off quarantine jail and you've got your fresh outfit on, finally invited to your first dinner party, no mask, you put on your gleaming white shirt, on your way out the door, the kid or somebody runs up to you and put ketchup stain right in the center of your shirt. The rest of your shirt seems like it's, it's not even there no more because people are going to focus right on wow. that ketchup stain. And yeah. it's, a, it's a reminder even on your psyche that you're in, um, that something's wrong with you or that you're imperfect and people will focus on that and not even focus on the rest of your shirt or won't even focus on the context, the conditions and circumstances that led to this stain on your shirt. <laughs> like they don't even talk about that. They just want to look at the stain and that context uh, becomes the concept what they take away from it without even thinking like, well, maybe she was in a hurry. You know, most people that have kids can very well identify with that or, you know, that even just people that made a mistake, like she spilled that she was rushing and she couldn't change, but they won't even think that far. They just say, you're dirty. <laughs> yeah. That's a, yeah, that's a, that's a great, um, interesting perspective. I think also she, she talks about that in terms of like not doing the personal work to like, like mm -hmm. the holistic approach that you're talking about, like, and maybe it's, a you know, like not changing behavior patterns that, that may have developed that, that can affect other people around them. Um, I think that's what she meant by that as well. So that's a really great perspective. Um, what is, uh, can you talk a little bit about, uh, Jay, your committed, uh, committed consulting work and, and what that, what that looks like and what you do there? So I started committed consulting uh, maybe about a year or so after I got out of prison and I really wanted to help individuals to really navigate the prison system. So I like to work with individuals that have family members that are in prison to help navigate to that system because some people just don't know. And guys, they go into the system, even 
street guys, they don't really know what to expect when they get to prison. Like you go in there and it's like a whole different world. Most guys don't even know what to sit. Mm. They don't know that it's, it's certain cellmates that you can't have. They don't understand the prison politics and families don't even understand something as simple as what do you wear when you go see your kids? What do your kids wear? Like what is the process of going through the visitation room? Like how do you maintain a certain sense of uh, sanity as your loved ones navigate through the system, dealing with attorneys, dealing with your pre-sentencing report, you know, just that whole environment. And even in some cases of guys that I've worked with, I've even, because I have a lot of contacts within the both federal and state prison centers, I can send a guy and say, hey, once you get to prison, go see Junior. <laughs> and Junior's going to take you through and whatever he tells you to do, and whoever, that's what you, that's what you do. And he's going to like co-sign you, as we say, to help you get acclimated into this system. Yeah. So just that, and but also just doing this, like speaking truth to power and just educating people about, hey man, if you, you know, this is what you're up against. I don't care what your lawyer tell you, based on these statutory mandatory minimums, this is what they're gonna give you. And the judge can't even take into consideration other factors. And the only factor that can, like when you, and I don't know if your audience know, like the extent of how, how diabolical these sentences is especially like when you're dealing with mandatory minimums because if you're sentenced to a statutory mandatory minimum the only way that you can get beneath that sentence is if the prosecutor the government file a 5k1 which is a motion to uh, cooperate with the government to provide substantial assistance you can sit down with the government and spill your guts but if it's not substantial and the government don't see that substantial that means you just spilled your guts you're not going to get a sentence reduction oh wow and your lawyer can't file. The only person that can file that 5K1 motion is the prosecutor. So if the prosecutor has to deem, yeah, this is enough. But most of the times, Jill, when we get sentenced, who are we going to tell on? <laughs> like, who are you really going to tell? Y'all the government. Y'all know everything anyway. So what? y'all just need me to cooperate it? Because y'all y'all got me and 50 other people. Y'all got people in my case that I don't even know. What y'all want me to do? Tell on Pablo? <laughs> I ain't never seen it. So as a consequence, you get a guy sit down, spill his guts, and they're like, well, we knew all that. And then next thing you know, you go to prison, and they see your paperwork and see that you've talked to the police, and now you're labeled a snitch, which means uh -huh. you're in So I think like, in explaining that to, to clients and their families, like, listen, as you navigate this, remember, it's you versus the United States of America. Right. And, and this isn't it's a hard it's, it's a hard it's a hard challenge because look at your look at your your you're fighting against yeah um that's such incredible work how do people find you for that like do is it kind of word word of mouth that they know and do they do they come to you like at the beginning of their process right after they get arrested or, or what point it's usually at the beginning of somebody's if but see it's, it's tricky because at the beginning everybody want to go spend a whole bunch of money on a lawyer and i'm like uh. I don't think you got enough money to fight the government. So you may want to, I'm not saying don't hire a lawyer, but I think being a part of that, that process. So usually they get, you know, about six months in and they say, hey, we need to talk to somebody else. And then somebody say, hey, I know a guy that you need to talk to. And then they talk to me and I'd be like, yeah, you know, spent $100,000, but let's see if we can get you the best deal possible. Or let's see if it's a way that maybe you can get yourself out of this based on these factors contingent upon, you know, what's in the case and really what you did or allegedly did. So, okay. Or as you're, like I'm word of mouth. My my uh, I don't know if you share my email address, but I, I'm I'm, I'm kind of paranoid. So people say, "Well, Jay, why are you not in the spotlight?" Because the spotlight becomes the microscope. <laughs> and a friend of mine, a Jewish friend of mine, said, "Well, Jay, where's the next MLK? The next Martin?" I was like, "They keep killing us, <laughs> so I don't want to be that." <laughs> I Leo, <laughs> like so, so that's why I'm not a big public. Like I don't want to be famous. Uh, I just want to help do the work in in my lane and and help 
create some small change and take that one bite at a time. Because man, as much as I dislike uh, not being in a bigger platform, I would hate being dead <laughs> or hate being targeted because sometimes you say things that, that people don't really want to swallow at this time. So I, that's why I appreciate people like you that be able to stand in the gap for individuals like me and use your, you know, your personal privilege to be able to influence this system because and to more people like yourself and as y'all can as we continue to grow this anti-racist movement then the spotlight can be shined on a multitude of people and they just throw a microscope on a few people and take them right. out everybody else be like well, i ain't saying nothing right, right. <laughs> what you say jay <laughs> right thank you for that um so you you got you got your passport back and you are able to vote how did you do that that's incredible how, what was that process like Actually, I didn't, what I did was I had, upon release, I was, I had 10 years of probation. So I went from a life sentence and then because of some laws helped me out, I ended up getting 13 years, but I still got sentenced to 10 years of probation. So the whole two years that I was out, I stayed in relationship with my probation officer. We had a, a decent rapport. I made sure that I was always working. I, I did everything. I didn't pass a drug. I didn't fail a drug test. I didn't, I was always on point. Whenever he called, he come by the house, I was at work and after the two years, I was able to, a new law came out that said that after you about 18 months or one year to 18 months of, of probation without any infractions, you can apply to have your, the rest of your probation suspended. So after the end of those two years, I applied, the prosecutor objected. The prosecutor said, no, this guy's a career criminal. He need to do the whole 10 years on paper. And the judge looked at all the things that I have done as far as becoming the CARES, the trucking company, the personal training, and my references, and the judge say, you know what? He puts forth a compelling argument. His probation officer says that he should be uh, released, and the judge rules in my favor. That was the first time I actually beat the, <laughs> the, beat the oh. <laughs> and and as a consequence to that, that's when I I, I file, I, I get the voting thing, and I end up getting my voter registration card. I apply for my passport, and I even got, and it was, oh man, I got a. a the uh, TSA, the traveler known number, the one that you can use when you travel with the, the, by the pre-check, the TSA thing. I even got that now. Nice. Yeah, and, and it was funny though, because about two years, two or three years, no, it was two years, I was doing a, a trucking company and I was on a naval base. And when you go into a naval base or military base, they run your background. So I had drove all the way to a military base and couldn't even unload my freight because they said, based on your background, you can't even deliver these goods. So I didn't get paid. I had to take the stuff all the way back. So that was heart wrenching. And then the first time I applied for the uh, TSA pre-check, they denied me too. So, but once I cleared those five years, then the things start coming into place. So it's really, you know, if, if anybody's just really interested, I think it's like after five years, do things really start kind of falling back in place? But so the stats show that that one to two years is that really critical time for individuals that are either seeking recovery or even being released because that's when it's those were my hardest times and that's when relationships are most fragmented and that's when people are really struggling to try to figure it out but now once you get to three years and four years and five years and have some sustainability that's when things start falling i don't know if it was system, uh, uh, systematically designed like that because most people recidivate or even have a setback within that first one or two years so if you can make it three and then five and then once you get to about seven then i think that's when you really can say okay i, I can i can level off a little bit so but i didn't like i didn't file anything necessarily or have other anything that i mentioned so other than filing for my 
suspension of the rest of my supervised release and just applying for the things that I wanted and eventually getting them. But I had to apply more than once. I had to make sure that I just was diligent about that. So having some really good references too. That's, that's so, I, I, I was not aware that, that you could ever get those rights back if you had uh, been incarcerated. So that's, that's great to know that that is doable. Do you help people do that as well with your committed mm -hmm. consulting? Right. Yes, I do. Okay. Um, what can people do? We're, we're, we're running short on time a little bit, but okay. is there, huh, why, why people love to ask, like, what can I do? What can I do to help? Uh, and and I, I generally encourage myself and other people to, you know, do the research and figure out what to do to help. But um, in, in these interviews, rather than asking other people to just tell them what to do, um, but sometimes in this interviews, they're in these interviews, people I talk to have, have specific things they would like to see more of from people. So um, is there something that um, people listening could potentially do to help support the work you're doing uh, microscopic or macroscopic? Yeah, I think on both levels, one of the things is I look at it internally first, like for me, I just want to be able to encourage people to have relationships with individuals like myself like i always try to issue a cultural competence challenge like yeah jay i know you and i are different but we have some let's try to figure out how we can have some kind of uh, similarities or some kind of synergistic relationships about some of the things that hold us and bind us together because like for me it's hard for me to trust so I have to be able to have a relationship with you from that connection to be able to trust. Like now I know a doctor that specializes in meditation. And so I can, that's, that's somebody in my Rolodex that I can reach out to. So when I have individuals that's in my community that have questions or concerns about things like that, I can say, hold on, let me text, let me text the homie Jill and she gonna tell me the whole thing about this. And if, imagine if, if every black person had a Rolodex of individuals that they was in relationship with that can help navigate them through whether it was healthcare, whether it's through taxes, whether it's through how to get loans or finances or, and those individuals, cause, cause trust me, if you and I got a relationship and you're in a room, whether it's a voting booth or whether it's in the boardroom, you're going to think about the relationship that you have to me. If something comes on the table that adversely affects me, whether good or bad. Yeah. So, people having relationships with black people and saying, hey, man, when I'm not there, he's still there because the relationship that I have with that person resides within me. And it's, and so I, that influences who I vote for. That influences my policy changes. That influences what happens at my job. That was what happened at the store. Because when I start seeing myself and another individual, I don't have to wait till it happens to my people for me to be outraged. If we're supposed to really be in this thing together, then if it happened to Jay, it happened to me. Hmm. And that influences everything that you do. And because so often, especially when it comes to politics, we are so accustomed to voting on a party, on party lines that we'll vote for somebody that even has our, against our own interests. Like you have gay people that go in there and vote for people that's anti-gay. <laughs> so I'm like, wait a minute, all because this person aligns with their, their party. So, I, and I'm not trying to say it's as simple as that, but I think it's, it, it kind of can be that because like when I started being in a relationship with people that didn't look like me or didn't believe like me or didn't have the same sexual preference. Now I speak up for those people on my platform 
So I think if I can just get your audience to know that, man, be in relationship with people that are different from you and use your purse, you know, a privilege, no matter what it is, no matter how small it is, to be able to influence a policy or decision. Because until there's accountability, until we're all free, really ain't none of us free. And I think that's the biggest thing for me. That's beautiful. Thank you. Um, and it really can, it, it, it can catalyze so much, I think that that connection um and the, the less of those people you know it's it becomes uh, us us people rather than those people um how can so okay you don't you don't want to be in the public eye so how how slash can people find you if they want to work with you or for someone who might be listening who knows someone who's struggling with substance abuse um and and they may want to work with with you or with um, like find a cares, a cares uh, coach, sobriety coach, um, recovery coach. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Have I learned anything? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <recovery> <laughs> <coach>. <laughs> um, how can like, is there a way for people to find you or do they kind of need mm -hmm. to be plugged into the system and then referred to you? If you want to find me personally, you can always contact me at committed consulting at gmail.com. Uh, if okay. you're, in the CARES program because we have CARES application. We do six CARES Academy per year. It's absolutely free to you. It's funded by the Department of Behavioral Health. So if you want to be a CARES and you meet the qualification, which is two years of absent recovery and a high school diploma GED, you can apply to become a CARES and we'll take you through the process. Uh, you, so you can go to the Georgia Council on Substabuse.org website and you can go to the CARES tab and apply for CARES. And you'll also see my bio on there. So if it's something under the auspices of the Georgia Council, then always reach out to me uh, via that uh, website or that platform. So it's two ways. You can look at, you can, you can catch up with me or you can reach out to me at j at gasubstanceabuse.org or you can reach out to me at committedconsulting at gmail.com. So either one of those platforms and I can navigate you. If it's something related to the council, uh, I would navigate you in that way. If it's something related to with what I do with my private practice, I can navigate you through that too. So you have, you have two bites at the apple when it comes to dealing with me. And you can always donate to at the council. We're a nonprofit. So donate, man. If it ain't nothing but $20, $40, $1,000, dollars just send that check, man. We'll, we can put it to good use because we're doing a lot of amazing work at the council. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, and thank you so much for, for, um, for uh, teaching me, educating me, you know, when, when I when I said things that were could could be said a little bit better, or or just there was like not the right thing to say, I appreciate you um, making sure that I that I have a more uh, a more correct way to say it and think about it. Um, so thank you for agreeing to be on this um, on this podcast and for all of the the wisdom and experience that you shared, um, and for the work that you do in this world, even though you're you're. Um, you said that you're staying in your lane. I feel like you're way, having way more of an impact um, than, than one individual. So thank you so much um, for all the work that you do. And thank you. And man, Jill, thank you because you're bold, man. <laughs> I just appreciate when we was on the Equitable Dinners thing, you was like, hey, you went to my podcast. I'm like, and I rarely say yes. I was like, you know what? I'm going to do this because if you <laughs> the ass, I'm going to gladly accept. And I just thank you for using your platform to you know, I went through the list of previous uh, podcasts and just how informative and how clear and concise and compelling you are in the work that you're doing because, you know, some people say, man, you ain't got to do this, and but you do, and you do it well, and you do it great, and I can tell you have a passion for this, and I thank you for just being my ally and my sister, man. I, I love you for it. I appreciate it.
Oh, well, gosh, that's the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me in my whole life. It's an honor to do this work and it's an honor to have, have connections to, to wonderful human beings like you that I wouldn't ordinarily um, have the chance to connect with and hopefully inspiring others to do the same. Cool. Great job. I appreciate it. Thanks, Jay. Hi there. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Conscious Anti-Racism. Please be sure to follow or like us wherever you find your podcasts and also consider leaving a rating or review. You can follow Conscious Anti-Racism on Instagram and Twitter at Jill Wiener, MD, J-I-L-L-W-E-N-E-R-M-D. And please check out our Conscious Anti-Racism book on Amazon.